history, nature, and the food we eat. We're talking about global changes, so this isn't just a Canadian story, this is a transnational story. A roundtable discussion about Canadian food history. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 37 of Nature's Past, the seventh part of our special series, Histories of Canadian Environmental Issues. We are joined by our assistant producers, Stacey Nation Canapper. Hello. And Andrew Watson. Hello. I mixed it up on you that time. <laughs> <laughs> this is our second part, uh, looking at the fifth Canadian environmental issue that we've been looking at on this series. And we're looking at agri-food systems in Canada. And on this episode, we're talking about food and the food that Canadian consumers consume. Uh, so maybe, Stacey, if you could start us off and give us a little bit of a sense of... Um, what it's like to eat in Canada today? What, uh, what are the issues that Canadians are concerned about in the present in terms of the food that they eat? Sure. So um, right now, a lot of folks are concerned about the source of their food, where it comes from, um, as well as what, uh, what kind of processes are involved with its creation. And one of the hot topics at the moment is GMO or genetically modified um, foods. And... Uh, one of the things in the news recently is that uh, Whole Foods grocery stores have decided uh, within the next five years to start request or requiring their producers to label any foods that are um, genetically modified. And this is the first um, supermarket to require this labeling in North America. And um, it has some folks up in arms, some folks very supportive. And, um, and so it, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, so in Canada right now in the grocery stores... Yep manufacturers, retailers are not required to label whether or not a food product is made with genetically modified organisms. Correct. So that came as a surprise to you? Absolutely. I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that until I read about this uh, recent change with Whole Foods policy. And I was a bit surprised. I thought that um, that would be something that would be disclosed on right. nutrition labels. And, and the only not. way that you can know is if it's certified organic. Yes, or if um, there are some um, kind of external watchdog groups who track um, which corporations use uh, genetically modified organisms and which don't, but um, they don't track everything. And so it's really on the consumer to try to find out whether or not what you're eating contains um, these organisms, if that's what you're concerned about. But also um, concerns about um, bacteria and um, contam food contamination have also been um, paramount in the news lately with uh, listeria outbreaks and uh, E. coli outbreaks and such. This is an interesting issue, too, because... Uh, categorizing food as GMO or organic is, is, is an entirely industry or NGO regulated. It's, it's non-governmental. Uh, there, there aren't really any government standards by which to assess organic or GMO uh, products, uh, ingredients and so forth. So what we have is what the consumer has to deal with really is this sort of like this crush of information. Uh, or, or a maze of information in some cases of trying to figure out what it is they're consuming. Their, their interest is, is peaked over the last few years, but the ability to actually find out what's in your, in your food, apart from looking at the label, is quite tough because in some cases you have these conflicting uh, branding type label mm -hmm. of GMO, non-GMO or, or organic labeling. And as Stacey said, when it comes to meat processing, there mm -hmm. are heightened anxieties about the industrial processing of meat with uh, catastrophic outbreaks of listeria and E. coli uh, from major meat processing 
corporations, uh, and the government is being asked to step in um, and enhance uh, food inspection. Yeah, absolutely. So just recently, um, on uh, in the first two weeks of March. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture asked um, Canada to begin labeling on its meat products, specifically muscle meat products, um, where the the animal was born, where it was raised, and where it was slaughtered. And um, Canada has responded that this is an outrage and that they should not. Uh, the, the, the Canadian government has responded that they should not have to be doing this, and um, that if the U.S. Uh, continues to quote unquote discriminate against Canada's. Uh, uh, meet in this way, then they could suffer retaliatory measures um, for requesting. So the, the Canadian government sees this as an unfair trade practice. Yep, absolutely. This is very interesting. We've come back, sort of, to rethink uh, how Canadians uh, and North Americans, in particular, think about the commodification of mm -hmm. food products. I mm -hmm. think for a long time, having standardized food products, was, there was a significant appeal of that for health reasons and for price reasons. And now in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a, a move back towards questioning the commodification of food products and, and, and understanding more about the drawbacks, especially when you start thinking about the scale to which things have come to now. So do you think then these responses, are you suggesting they're historically contingent, that the slow food movement, locavores, farmers markets, uh, genetically modified organism labeling, organic certification, are these responses to this particular moment in Canada's food history uh, and responses to, what, industrialization of food production, corporatization of food production, dissociation from urban food consumers and rural food producers? Yeah, I think so. And I think, too, the globalization of, of food. And so mm -hmm. the... Um, a kind of the homogenization in many ways of what it is that we eat and how it's you know, so similar in so many different places. So um, perhaps some questions about why, why that is, how that's come about over time. The idea of like tinkering with nature mm -hmm. to make a better product some, seems to, to bother people to a certain extent. Also, the, the images that come out of some you know, cattle producing or chicken raising operations, the scale at which these things are happening, and, the, and things like uh, foot and mouth disease, uh, these, these things that, that come up as, as sort of byproducts or unintended consequences of, of these agri-food systems mm -hmm. are really awakening uh, Canadians that there's a lot more information to seeing how these things are done. I think the incidence of problems of these unintended consequences are far more frequent than they used to be. And this, I think, is one of the more interesting new fields in Canadian history that intersects with environmental history, and that's the field of food history, looking at how Canadians have related to food, what foods we've eaten and what foods we have not eaten, and how our ideas about food have changed over time, how they reflect different cultural values, and how they reflect particular historical contexts. And we're going to speak with some of them. On this episode, we'll be uh, speaking with a group of food historians of Canada's food history. Hi, I'm Franca Yakovetta. I'm an historian at the University of Toronto. Hi, I'm Valerie Kornick. I'm a historian at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm Marlene Epp here. I'm a historian at uh, Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo. Uh, I'm Jamie Merton. I am at uh, Nipissing University. Hi, I'm Ian Monby. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Guelph. 
Welcome, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us here today to tell us a little bit more about this new uh, edited collection uh, called Edible Histories, Cultural Politics Towards a Canadian Food History. I thought I might start by asking the three editors, Franca, Valerie, and Marlene, if they could tell us a little bit more about the origins of this book. How did the project come together? Uh, and maybe, Franca, you could start us off. Okay, thank you. I was uh, I was at least initially the ringleader, so I think three of us the three of us now are um, all ringleaders in the project. Um, I think there's uh, and thank you for um, having this roundtable on uh, on the book. We worked very hard on it, um, but I think there's a couple of ways of answering uh, your question. I mean, one is a kind of specific one, and then the other a little bit more general. I think there's no, you know, it's it's in some ways. Um, not surprising that Canadian women historians, gender historians, are interested in issues around women and given the significant you know, historical relationship between women and food, not the natural relationship, but a kind of socially constructed <laughs> historical relationship um, that you know, we found in the context of working on larger projects that looking at food is really important, both as a subject of, of analysis and also as a lens through which to look at other issues, whether it was, you know, in the case of, of um, Valerie looking at uh, women's magazines and prescriptive kinds of literature, mm -hmm. um, Marlene and I looking at immigrant women, dealing with oral interviews, looking at uh, questions around, you know, dislocation, migration, resettlement, and so forth, that looking at food was interesting, useful, illuminating. And so, you know, we started publishing some work in food history, could see some other things coming up, and we said, hey, we should do a more concerted kind of collaborative project in food history. Um, and we had a you know, very significant response to our call for papers, which was great. I also think the larger answer um, to your question, as with mm -hmm. other topics, is that, you know, as historians, we study the past, but often our choice of research topic is quite influenced by the present and by contemporary debates and enthusiasms and anxieties, and there's no question that food, right, is very much in the news, it's very much a site of anxiety, it's very much a site of, of, of ac activism, both local and globally. Um, we've got, you know, fears about um, everything from fast food diets to, um, you know, preventable outbreaks like E. coli tainted water. We have um, all sorts of young people mobilized politically around issues of food. Um, we also have a kind of food, you know, foodism and food enthusiasm, uh, whether we want to call it multicultural eating or whether it's, you know, world fusion diets or whatever, that there's an awful lot of interest, activism around social justice and food. And so as historians, um, I think, you know, we want to we want to look at those uh, look at those topics, look at declarations about what's new and what's you know, and see what whether these things are new or whether it's a resurgence. What's you know, were these things going on in the past, and 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 can we therefore you know bring an historical perspective to contemporary debates? Uh, and Valerie, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what brought you into the project, picking up on some of the points that uh, Frank has made. Sure, thank you. Uh, and I would echo what Frank has said. We're just uh, thrilled to have this podcast devoted to talking about food history and, and featuring the um, anthology. Um, one of the, I'd add a couple extra points here uh, to what is a really uh, excellent overview of where we got our uh, inspiration from, in that um, increasingly, not only a contemporary concern of Canadians and North Americans in general with food, um, but also 
increasingly historians teaching about food history mm -hmm. and students in social history classes, popular culture classes, um, ethnicity, race, immigration, gender history, having weeks or multiple weeks devoted to aspects of food production, social histories of food, uh, consumption, these sorts of things. So that was a tremendous uh, lever that really propelled all of us individually to think there's, there's more going on here and we'd like to sort of perhaps target future courses in food history, but also to uh, answer an increasing need for student um, readings in the history of food. Mm -hmm. But we also realized as the history of food has evolved over um, 15 or 20 years, that all of us who initially were doing other projects that had a component with food or production uh, images in Chatelaine, for instance, advertising of food products, mm -hmm. that increasingly that story and that focus on food histories was not just peripheral to another project, but was indeed very central. And so we've shifted our gaze directly onto food, and it's been an extremely productive shift for all of us in, in reconceptualizing what we do, the politics of eating, the politics of history. And it's given us a way to, I think, engage with audiences that aren't necessarily as passionate about Canadian history as the three of us are, but through food, something that speaks to many, many people who are watching home and garden television, eating out, reading restaurant reviews, et cetera, et cetera, think, hey, people are writing a history of food. Um, I'm interested in food, and I'm interested, therefore, in history. And so that's been tremendously exciting to see people get enthusiastic and energized about food history. And Marlene, have you found the same thing? Um, oh, for sure. Uh, I, in fact, am teaching um, a course uh, called Food, Culture, and History this semester and am using this textbook for the very first time and uh, am enjoying that immensely. I'm hoping my students are too. <laughs> I look forward to uh, getting their takes on the textbook once they, they can do their, their student evaluations in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just want to add one, uh, well, maybe two points to what uh, Franca and Val already said about uh, the genesis of this book. Uh, once the three of us had the idea and the passion to move forward with it, we decided that um, the best way to uh, begin to develop the book was in a workshop form. Mm -hmm. And we were very, very fortunate to uh, receive a shirt grant to bring together uh, almost all of the scholars who are currently in the book to a small workshop where we, of course, ate lots of good food <laughs> and um, talked about food a lot. And it was uh, what was particularly interesting is that we realized we were all uh, approaching very different topics in Canadian history, um, but food was a, was a common meeting point. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that's one. Thing to mention. I'd also uh, just add that we were all, I, I think, motivated also by a desire to do a food history um, about Canada, but which did not attempt to define, you know, the Canadian national food. Mm -hmm. um, we've certainly had lots of um, wonderful books and writers explore that topic. Uh, but I think what we were more interested in doing is how can we understand Canadian history better uh, if we're looking through the lens of food. So we wanted to shift the conversation about food history in Canada just a little. 
Well, you certainly got a positive response from scholars. The anthology includes over 20 essays from uh, over 20 different uh, historians working in a variety of different areas of food history, and we've got uh, two of the contributors in addition to the editors who also contributed essays to this collection. Uh, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie Merton uh, from Nipissing uh, University contributed an essay called uh, John Bull and Sons, the Empire Marketing Board and the Creation of a British Imperial Food System. So maybe I'll ask uh, Jamie to tell us a bit about his contribution to this anthology. Uh, sure. Yeah, the, um, it focuses on the Empire Marketing Board, which is this uh, really kind of fascinating um, short-lived thing created by the British government in the 1920s, which was supposed to market empire products, and a lot of it was food in Britain. Um, and what I was sort of interested in, or what I argued, was that this was really an instance of building a market, so building a market mm. food. So sort of theoretically, I sort of started with this idea that uh, capitalist markets are not natural, that they have to be constructed and they get constructed out of uh, environment, they get constructed out of uh, cultural connections, you know, sort of this sense that the empire is um, something that, you know, various peoples are part of, and they get constructed by government. And you can see sort of all this happening in the Empire Marketing Board. So one of the, one of the, one of the big things that the Empire Marketing Board is known for is it produces these kind of wonderful posters um, you know, with these images of various parts of the empire and this one of the slogan, the empire is your garden. Um, and so to me, one of the things that was doing was saying it's, it's normal to eat food from the other side of the world. And it's normal mm -hmm. because we're all part of this empire. Um, and I was also, I'm primarily an environmental historian, so I was also interested in the way in which the uh, kind of material nature of apples, which is the thing I focused on, um, was needed to be dealt with. So they needed to be carefully packed, they needed to be preserved, and all of this needed to be set up and sort of mm -hmm. set in place and, and then sort of science applied to it and have it um, improved um, often by government, by the Empire Marketing Board in this case. So, um, so that's what I was looking at. And it, it's really an attempt to... Um, it's really an attempt to talk about sort of the pre-World War II global food system, which gets talked about a lot less than the um, than the second, the the one that came after the Second World War, mm -hmm. and and to talk about the role of um, settler colonies like Canada in this, which gets talked about even less than the roles of sort of non-settler colonies. And that's interesting for Canadians in the present who. Um most often when they go to the grocery store will be picking up items that come from all around the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, um, to, to, I mean, it's, it, there's a long history in certain things, you know, mm -hmm. sugar goes way back and spices go back even further. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things, one of the, I mean, I'm, I'm continuing to study apples and one of the things that's inter interesting to me is that this is a perishable product mm -hmm. that, it's supposed to be eaten fresh, and so I'm interested in sort of the challenges of transporting that across the world, and how how is that done, and what kind of what kind of structures need to be set in place to make that happen. And your your contribution to the anthology picks up on some themes that we talked about on a previous episode of the podcast when we looked at uh, chicken breeding um, and the role that the broiler industry played in the mid 20th century. Um, promoting uh, the consumption of chicken meat and creating markets for the consumption of chicken meat. Um, sort of underlining that point that you made that um, 
these marketing boards and uh, corporate interests weren't just following consumer behavior, but they were making an effort to try and invent markets for their food products. Yeah, I mean, there was a campaign. It's not talked about in, in this essay because I came across it afterwards, but there was a campaign in Britain called the Eat More Fruit Campaign. So fairly <laughs> fairly straightforward. <laughs> now, that's a, a, a kind of natural segue here to talk about Ian's uh, essay in this anthology called Making and Breaking Canada's Food Rules, Science, the State, and uh, the Government of Nutrition, 1942 to 1949. Ian, can you tell us about uh, your contribution? Yeah, sure. Um, it actually initially started based on my interest in Canada's food guide, something I'd come across a lot um, as a child uh, in, in classrooms and in um, uh, hanging up in my mom's cupboard. And so I was curious as to how this rather controversial, problematic, and fascinating document came into being. Um, and so a bit of research led me to its equally fascinating World War II era predecessor, which was given the fantastic name of Canada's official food rules. Um, and so what I found to put a rather complicated story into its simplest terms was that both the food rules and the official nutritional standards that formed its basis um, reflected wartime anxieties about Canada's ability to meet its military, industrial, and agricultural commitments to the larger war effort. Um, and so I look at the ways in which uh, a decision to create a national nutrition education campaign premised on what I found to be um, utopian notions around maximum growth, maximum productivity, and maximum cultural input uh, would have a series of really unintended long-term social, political, and cultural effects. And the ways in which nutrition starts to get used by left-wing social activists during the war and after the war really challenges um, nutrition professionals and creates uh, a schism within professions that mm. transform the ways in which the concept of malnutrition is defined. Hmm. And did you find in your case study here that the state's um, promotion of these nutritional rules had any kind of intersections with um, business and the development of agriculture as an industry? I think definitely. Well, one of the things that, that happens is rules um, really promote people to eat more of almost everything. So business really gets behind the food rules because it's almost impossible to break them to a certain extent. Um, and so you start to see ads during the war that say, you know, follow Canada's food rules, eat more bread. Um, but it's true, the food rules, because they're based on sort of you know, utopian visions of maximum production, really encourage people to eat a lot of food and a lot more food than they've been eating. Well, maybe we can open the conversation up to think a little bit more broadly about food history, and I'll ask Franca to... Uh, get us started as she's already um, begun to hint at this in her first remarks, but how, how do we define food history as a sub-discipline of, of Canadian history? Well, since I don't know how we define it, I'll say that it's many things to many people, but okay. I think that there's a shared, you know, there's a shared sense that um, looking at, um, at food and its attendant practices, whether it's you know, shopping, cooking, fishing, hunting, um, uh, rituals around um, its uh, consumption, that all of those things wrapped up, you know, either looked at individually or looked at in, in, in connection with each other, can provide a lens, you know, through which we can illuminate a variety of processes and developments and, and dynamics. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about what um, Ian and Jamie just talked about, uh, that uh, the variety of 
topics and subjects and processes that are looked at in the book um, are quite wide-ranging, and I think you've got a sense of that from the two of them, but I think among you know, the other uh, themes in the book, because, you know, Valerie, Marlene, and I could well have chosen to make this a book on you know, in Canadian women's history, mm-hmm. and that would have been an important book. But we also said, you know, listen, there's a. We want to also uh, look at, you know, look at this variety of of uh, of, of uh, literature, of of research, of insight that comes out of looking at food. So some of the other themes that the book explores are issues around cultural exchange and cuisine in contact zones of various types, but certainly cultural exchange between white settler women and indigenous groups in different locales. Uh, it, different historical periods is something that uh, um, you know a number of the essays uh, address from um, early contact period to very recent 1960s mm-hmm. uh, uh, nutritional surveys of Aboriginal women. Um, there are a number of essays that deal with regional foodways, and given how vast Canada is and this you know massive geographical terrain or, or place of many terrains, mm-hmm. um, that in you know regional foodways are really important. And so being able to look at um, a variety of hybrid mixing, borrowing, um, you know, creolization, to use some of the terminology of food historians, mm-hmm. that that's happening in different, in different locales. So we have a wonderful piece by Marie Harriman on, um, on Newfoundland, um, also one by Meg Davies on the Peace River in B.C. Um, in addition to Ian's wonderful piece on the Canada Food Guide, we've got Cheryl Warsh looking at um, corporate uh, uh, efforts to sell, um, you know, sell um, healthy foods to parents and kind of using the anxiety of parents to sell food. Um, Carolyn Duron's interesting piece on teaching nutrition before the Quiet Revolution and how it's very wrapped up in French-Canadian cultural uh, uh, values and ideology. Certainly ethnic foodways uh, was important, as was corporate marketing um, and protest, food protests, uh, mm-hmm. as well as um, cookbooks and looking at women's activism and labor around food. But I'll let... Val and Marlene can probably tell you more about some of those things. Okay. Thanks, Franca. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the definition of food history is a very broad one, and it's still uh, very much determined by one's particular approach to what is essentially a very multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary field of study. Um, you know, if this was an undergrad exam, I would be looking to see something along the lines of social and cultural history of food products, production, mm-hmm. knowledge, and consumers. But having said that, I mean, one of the things that is fascinating about this is the various intersections. So yes, we all come from a a gender history background, looking at issues of popular culture, race, immigration, ethnicity, but food history in many contexts is is identified with environmental history, issues of sustainability, agricultural history. That's a huge issue out here in the prairies um, and at the University of Saskatchewan, so much so that when people talk about food history here, uh, one almost has to lobby so that they don't forget that there's actually a social and cultural and gendered component of it. So uh, defined as it is by the land and the environment and issues of sustainability, but um, issues of nation, issues of regions, locality, medical history, um, fascinating, fascinating opportunities for us to enlarge a discussion of um, our own fields plus food history, but also to ask some pointed questions about um, both the Canadian past and the contemporary situation in which we find ourselves grappling with what are very politicized issues about how and why people eat the way they do and what ramifications that has for us as um, consumers and citizens uh, of a global global world. 
I think we also um, differentiate food history somewhat from culinary history, mm. um, which would tend to be a focus on looking at what people ate and how they prepared it in the past. And certainly many of us draw um, very much on the work of culinary historians who really are the pioneers uh, in terms of historical work on food. Mm. Um, but I think we would differentiate food history as looking at you know, as Val and Franca have already said, looking at the social, political, economic, cultural meanings of food and food practices. And Jamie, where do you see, do you see a tension in food history between um, looking at food historically uh, in terms of its social and cultural construction and then looking at food from its material uh, place in the past? Um, I'm not sure I see a tension. I mean, I was I was interested in what in what Valerie was saying about having to lobby for the food as a cultural and social history because in my experience has has been that um, I always I always felt like food history is primarily a cultural and social history, and I always felt like I had to sort of lobby for environmental environmental <laughs> <laughs> history. Um, but I'm not. You need to come west. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not sure I sort of see a tension there necessarily. Um, I I I think that um, the environment, sort of the environmental, the material aspect of it, fits in uh, quite neatly. Mm. And um, I certainly haven't experienced sort of people saying, "Oh, we don't want to talk about that kind of thing." Um, I um I did I was uh, I was a I was an I was a peer I thought maybe I shouldn't say this. Uh, you know, but anyways, I was a peer reviewer on a on a book um, book proposal um, for a uh, history of American foodways. So if anybody is listening, anybody that edited that is listening to that, I guess I've outed myself now. <laughs> um, but it was, and I thought it was a great proposal. But it it did um, one of the things I said was of the sort of twenty six chapters you have, you really need to do a chapter on agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and it was but it was, you know, it was it was they were certainly paying attention to agriculture. It was just spread out amongst other things. So whether that's a question of um, uh, you know, that it was I, I felt it wasn't getting paid enough attention to, but then that's my specialty, who knows? But no, I, I suppose I don't I don't see a huge sort of tension in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ian, for you, do you see food history um, as making uh, outward contributions toward environmental history, agricultural history, cultural, social history? Oh, definitely. Well, one of the things about food history is if you if you follow even a specific commodity um, from field to table, you get all of these histories. So you can tell multiple histories within a single story. And I think this is what attracted me to food history initially. I was I started my career as a historian of science, historian of medicine. Um, and very quickly realize that you can't write food history if you leave out the social and cultural elements, if you leave out um, the envir uh, environmental elements or, or the history of science. So, you know, this is the attraction and the challenge of food history. Mm. You know, it's so wide-ranging in scope, um, and it's by its very nature interdisciplinary. So you really need to read widely um, to do good food history. Well, as Franca uh, suggested at the outset here, Food history for Canadians is of particular interest. Um, you've argued that there's a contemporary concern about agri-food systems in Canada. So what can food history tell us about um, those concerns, and, and what can that kind of history contribute to our understanding of our relationship between uh, Canadians and the food we eat? Well, I guess, 
I guess I'm, you're addressing me, so I'll say something very, um, uh, very general, which is um, I do think that there are different ways in which um, looking at food history can get our students, for example, um, thinking about the relationship to the land. Because I think, you know, I, I live in a very urban place, and I teach in a very urban city, and I teach to a very multicultural student body um, who sometimes have very little relationship to uh, what they think of as the rural countryside and where animals come from and where, you know, our food uh, production comes from, comes from in many cases. So I think being able to make some of those connections um, in the context of looking at food is important. I think for me, you know, if I can also link this to the other question about tension, is that sometimes the discussion for me about food and about mindful eating and about the 100-mile diet and those things, which are ways in which um, students um, link into food history, that sometimes for me it is a bit problematic if they're not also thinking about for me as a labor historian, not also thinking about migrant populations or agricultural food workers, mm -hmm. um, thinking about migratory, you know, uh, uh, global circuits of food and so forth, and that there's people, you know, in that food history. And I think sometimes um, students who become, in a way, keen foodies and are very keen about um, eating foods of the world and so forth don't always think about the peoples attached to those foods mm -hmm. and the people who labor um, and the people involved in, you know, everything from canneries to incredibly crowded, you know, sort of sweatshops of food uh, mm -hmm. production. So I think those things for me are important. I'll just um, jump in here about the contemporary connection. Uh, one thing I've been asking my students to do this semester is read the uh, chapters in edible histories, and then write about how what what they can learn about a contemporary food concern um, mm -hmm. from that article. And uh, so many of the students who come to this topic come with real, uh, you know, urgent and not so urgent, but but very presentist ideas and uh, concerns about food. Uh, so. For instance, um, I love to um, teach Jane, Jamie's article on uh, the Empire Marketing Board because as, as students are fascinated by this, this chapter because it promotes global eating, right? Eating within the empire and, um, you know, New Zealanders eating what, apples from Canada or Brits eating apples from Canada. And most of the students are so oriented now around localism, uh, mm -hmm. those who are food activists, right? And uh, this idea that it would have been viewed as a good thing to eat globally uh, is an interesting contrast for how they feel that they are being uh, encouraged to eat, eat locally. Uh, on the other hand, when they read um, Megan Davies' article or about um, sort of settling in the northern Alberta um, in the 1930s and, and trying to feed your families, you know, trying to find food security or Stacey's and Britsky talking about Ukrainians in, in Sudbury trying to make it through the Depression um, uh, through local eating, through gardening, uh, sourcing locally. They can identify with, with that very much um, and are curious about that, that same, those same patterns that they're trying to incorporate into their daily lives now. Uh, we're part of uh, food security uh, agenda for for Canadians, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, I I would just add to what Marlene said that I think one of the really interesting things is the way in which 
people in this respect, in this field, take their contemporary questions and concerns and then can reflect it backwards. I've assigned edible histories for my PhD students this year, and one of them said to me uh, quite uh, unprompted that uh, in reading Moira Han Hanrahan's piece on um, sealing in Newfoundland, it was the first time she got why that was such a contested issue between Newfoundlanders and the rest of the world, and that it wasn't just an issue of animal rights. And I thought, you know, this is, this is a, another way for them to sort of grasp the way in which our contemporary concerns have such a rich historical past and that without that it loses any sort of, you know, um, uh, ability to comprehend in more than just a superficial way what some of these transnational networks are about, uh, oppressions, you know, who eats, who doesn't eat, the politics of that, social justice issues. Those have a very rich and detailed history and this is a way to get students thinking about, in some respects, some very politicized issues, hot topic issues that approached in a more um, straightforward manner might not be so easily discussed in the classroom, mm -hmm. but somehow through food it breaks down some of those tensions and so they can begin to talk about very difficult issues but in a, in a constructive way for a classroom. So I found that also a very useful way that food history has sort of um, brought a number of people into a conversation that they might not feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Ian, have you found the same thing? You've been teaching in uh, Guelph um, outside of uh, Toronto, but within an agricultural community and on a campus that is very highly attuned to concerns about local uh, sourcing for food. Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I definitely see my students, actually I, a lot of my students in my class this term are students in the um, nutrition and food science uh, departments at Guelph, and so it's been very interesting to see these sort of um, the different conversations we have. I have some students who are food activists, other students who work on things like nutraceuticals and on the science end of um, sort of corporate food. And so food history really allows us to have these kinds of conversations about the sort of the origins of our contemporary system and, and some of the, the problems with it mm -hmm. um, and how we can better understand those. And so, you know, it's been, it's been really useful for me actually to get these insights contemporary insights on what these students are doing in their actual studies um, or in their activist work and applying it to to our discussion of the past. I wonder if I could ask the group a, a, a larger synoptic question that we've been asking at these panels, and I, and I know I haven't given you this question in advance, so uh, feel free to reject <laughs> it if you'd like, but if we're thinking about Canadian history from uh, Confederation up to the present, and, and we're trying to understand what food history can tell us about our contemporary relationship with food, what stands out in, in Canada's 19th and 20th century history uh, as some of the major turning points or changes in the relationship between Canadians and food? Oh, well, that's a, that's a huge question. I'll take a shot at it, All but right. I think um, I'll um, uh, and not be worried if I don't pass the test. Um, I think, you know, to go back to one of the things that Marlene said about, uh, you, know, we, you know, we set out to try to do a book in Canadian food history, and we're very happy that there are others coming out now, and, you know, What's to Eat by Natalie Cook just before us. Um, and so forth, um, and we really wanted to produce a Canadian volume that participated in this wider international activity, um, but at the same time centered Canada or these various regions and territories that became Canada, um, but also at the same time didn't want to produce 
didn't want to engage in a nationalist project, right? So it's mm -hmm. not a strictly nation-bound food history. So for us, it was really important to be able to, in some coherent way, um, to say that there are so many histories here and that turning points in chronology and so forth might differ depending on who we're talking about and where and with what wider connections so that trying to bring together in one collection through these 23 um, essays bring together local um, histories, regional histories, national ones, transnational ones, multicultural um, histories is really important. I mean, one of the things we you know, often tell our Canadian history students is not to think of the contact era between Indigenous and white settler as one moment in one place, mm -hmm. that it happens, right, uh, different times, different places, between particular groups of Europeans and particular groups of Indigenous uh, peoples, and that the nature of those uh, dynamics might be similar but also different, and they happen at different times, possibly with different um, short-term consequences, so on and so forth. And I think that if we take that kind of approach, uh, we can see that through food history. So, for example, in some of our um, some of the essays that deal with um, with indigenous white settler um, exchanges, um, we have you know someone looking like Alison Norman that's looking at very familiar writings of um, Susanna Moody and the other mm -hmm. women of the mid 19th century, um, but highlighting you know what they had to say about their food exchanges with native women and the ways in which it did influence a kind of ecological approach towards the land. You know it was obviously a, a certain kind of dependence, right? They needed that they needed the assistance, they needed the knowledge. They needed some of the actual foods, but the way in which this also could encourage um, a respect for the environment. Meg Davies says that for the for the uh, uh, for a later period in the early 20th early 20th century in BC, mm -hmm. um, and ways in which those kinds of interactions can shape things are important. I think. The, you know, I would put to my students, is there a Canadian food? And, and the answer probably would be no, and that it would be a myriad uh, of uh, varieties that are, are, you know, interplay between peoples in different times and periods. So I would see that as a, a way of being able to kind of plot it across Canadian history. We could have a debate about whether the staple historians, at least the ones who looked at wheat and fish, mm -hmm. were food historians, mm -hmm. and how we want to, you know, look at that and through, uh, through a wider lens. Um, and I think there's no question that moments in the um, industrialization of food mm -hmm. right, have had, to have had a, a significant impact um, on, on people, Canadians, uh, Canadians included. Yeah, I was going to jump in for a second there. I think, yeah, my students might, might suggest that there's great variety in their contemporary lives, but I've, I've taught in several cities in Canada, and I think that my students might also talk about a flattening or homogenization of their experience with food in the <laughs> 21st century, that the food that my students eat in Vancouver is very similar from the s food that my students eat in Toronto. Right, yeah, fair enough, whole, fair enough. Yeah, um, the yeah, whole but, issue of corporatization and Canada's alignment with North American, i.e. American, multinational corporations would be a huge turning point in uh, 20th century food histories and that we're still in opposition to all of the eating local, um, the 100-mile diet uh, debates about organic food all comes back to the way in which food has been commodified in a particularly narrow way uh, for North American and indeed many uh, Western countries around the world. And so that's a huge issue that defines this field and you see people coming at it from a variety of perspectives. Again, within Canada, these issues of multiculturalism, ethnicity, adaptation, resistance to the state, to individuals on a local level. It's a huge, huge 
uh, issue within food history, the way in which people actually construct and maintain and transmit that culture of eating within their families, within their communities, within their cities, um, provides a lot of insight into the dynamics of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's another fascinating way to get at some of those big questions that we've been asking for a long time about what this country is about. Who are we? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that um, I think that what happened after the Second World War, like all the, all the changes in sort of in post-war society, and, and I'm thinking are, are really crucial. And I'm thinking particularly of the emptying out of the countryside. Um, and, uh, you know, Ruth Sanwell's work has sort of shown that the the extent to which we, you know, we, we thought that Canada was becoming urban in the 1920s and 30s, which I think she's convincingly argued is has quite a bit to do with how the census defined urban. <laughs> um, and so I think there was a, a huge shift after the Second World War um, where people were simply disconnected from, you know, we're down to 2% of the population or something like that uh, actually working on farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a fairly massive shift, and that's a fairly massive sort of disconnect from um, the places where food is actually being uh, being produced. Right. Um, so from a country that began where the majority occupation was in agriculture in some form to mm-hmm. one in which 2% or lower are actually engaged in that kind of work. Yeah. And I mean, and also, um, and I'm less familiar with this history, so I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but I think um, the periodization might be a little bit different, but also a lack of um, uh, increasingly people can't access uh, wild foods either in the same way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a whole sort of fascinating developing history around the restricting of access to fish and um, uh, hunting and things like this mm-hmm. uh, and transforming those into tourist enterprises, essentially. And this is where conservation history would intersect with food history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ian, uh, what about for you, uh, looking at 19th and 20th century Canadian history, big changes in Canadian food history that you could identify? Well, one thing I'd like to, to add is, you know, when we look at some of the biggest changes, Jamie's talking about sort of the post-war industrialization of farms, post-war industrialization of food production. Um, we're talking about global changes. So this isn't just a Canadian story. This is a transnational story. You know, some of the big <clears throat> turning points I think of, um, things like the introduction, introduction of pesticides and herbicides on farms. Well, this is happening globally. Uh, the nutritional transformation that it's sort of transformation of the science of nutrition, the discovery of vitamins, for instance. Mm. This is not just a Canadian story. And so this links Canada to a larger global shift that's happening. And I think this is sort of one of the important parts of food history is, you know, it's not about the nation state specifically. It's Canadians interacting with this larger global transformation that's taking place throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Well, and that shift in nutritional standards, as as Ian, you're talking about, right, is, is very sort of parallel to this this in sort of whole movement where you know you move away from food and it, and you move into nutrition you move away from food and you move into vitamins etc mm-hmm. um, and that I mean in, in some way that's clear in my head and maybe it's not clear as it's coming out of my mouth but it's sort of parallel to in a sense to a shift in farming right where it becomes about um, producing um, large amounts of things which can be sold and a shift away perhaps from um, from um, uh, thinking about sort of the the eatability of of the things that you're producing. I'm not. I don't want to go after contemporary farmers to that extent, but. Um. 
Uh, Marlene, maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit uh, more about where you see food history going in the historiography for Canadian history. The subtitle of this book is Towards the Canadian Food History. <laughs> so what's the future of Canadian <laughs> food history? Well, there will just be more and more, I think. Um, <laughs> I think we've just uh, produced this book on sort of the cusp of a uh, real explosion of interest in uh, food history, food studies generally. Um, so I look forward to more um, multidisciplinary conversation uh, in contexts like the Canadian Food Studies Association, where you have historians, you have economists, you have uh, nutritionists, etc. Et mm -hmm. You know, talking about their mutual interests in food. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's really exciting. Um, I. You know, when, just in our conversation here today, uh, I can identify well there are gaps in our our book, as there are in all books, right? Topics that we that we haven't addressed. You know, the um, where our our, our contemporary concerns uh, about fast food, about processed food, about um, you know whatever you think about genetically modified food, where that intersects with fairly recent history. Um, so uh, I can see there being a lot more food history coming out with, which deals with um, the post-Second World War era that looks at, um, you know, processed food, the fast food explosion and McDonaldization of the world and uh, Tim Hortonization, which um, other food historians have addressed. Mm -hmm. But I think that will probably in increase. I know that's some of the work that, that Ian is doing. Um, but really, you know, taking our contemporary food issues and historicizing them, uh, I think that will be very exciting. Valerie, how about for I, you I would add, Franca? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to add that, um, you know, I, what I haven't talked about very explicitly is, you know, teaching food history in the multicultural classroom, which is what I do um, at the University of Toronto. And it's, uh, it's a very, very interesting context because certainly you, you know, students in some ways, uh, young multicultural Canadians, um, experience the paradoxes of food, the ironies of food, both the richness and the stigmatizing uh, that comes with foods, you know, foods of other people, mm -hmm. foods from other, other worlds. Mm -hmm. But I think also um, that what seems so clear to me, and it links to some of what Ian was just saying too, is the transnational. I think there is tremendous interest and growing interest in the transnational um, in terms of um, you know, historical, but also more contemporary studies of transnational circuits in food. Um, also, uh, the role of food in diasporic communities. I mean, as mm -hmm. an historian, right, migration is not uh, is not just a product of the post World War II or postmodern world. It uh, has a long history in the migrations of peoples and the the varieties that come out of that sort of mixing. You know, the emergence of foods and and uh, um, hybrid foods and mixing of foods and how that operates in various diasporic communities. It seems to me that that holds tremendous potential for food studies. Well, if I could just put in my two cents worth from, from Western Canada, teaching in a city like Saskatoon also opens one's eyes. And I think from here, the, the future of food history, although it is as broad as Marlene has said, and people are very energized by it, but it really has to be, I think, about social justice issues, inequitable access to food. This is a rich country. And yet people, huge portions of the Canadian population can't access food. Mm -hmm. So 
food banks were thought to be a short-term solution in the 1980s. They are with us. They have proliferated across the country. They are on university campuses. They're in inner cities. It's astonishing to me that food banks have become an entrenched part of Canadian life. Mm -hmm. School lunch programs, school breakfast programs. Here in Saskatoon in the summer, they run an inner city program for at-risk youth, elementary school students who are handed out bag lunches every day because they're not in school for two months, and if they didn't get those bag lunches, those kids wouldn't eat. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of really tough questions that force us to come at issues of colonialism, poverty, inequity through food and its inequitable distribution, I think really is, is a key area that we need to be thinking about going forward. And this picks up really nicely on your uh, work, Jamie, on subsistence. Do you see this as a new area for food historians? Uh, subsistence? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we've been, we've been just trying to, I would, um, basically I think what we've been doing yeah, is trying to think about in terms of subsistence or sort of asking questions about where are people getting the food they need and to what extent are they getting it outside of the market as part of this project that I've been, uh, I've been working on. Um, and I think it is a, a nice way to um, think beyond some of these um, questions about um, assumptions about that, uh, you know, every, every sort of good farmer was producing for the market um, and, to sort of, and to sort of get us kind of down to sort of the brass tacks of how are people actually surviving. Um, and I can, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think it's sort of a useful kind of, I think it's sort of a useful focus that we could be going into in food history. And I like the way it kind of draws in um, issues of environment and agriculture with, um, with uh, issues of access to food and ways of setting up equitable societies. And Ian, you've been interested in looking at food processing. Do you see this as a new frontier for food historians as well? I think so. One of my one of my interests in the in the project in particular was to try to um, incorporate environmental history into sort of our everyday lives. You know, the the act of eating um, really challenges the sort of dubious distinction between that we have between say nature and culture or environment and society. The fact that we need food to survive, the fact that food has such a profound effect on our health, um, but that it's also at the center of our culture allows us to really, you know, um, write new kinds of histories that, that really, you know, the fact that you can go from field to table uh, and write a really complex history of, of something so mundane as, as food and eating, I think that's really exciting for me. Well, the anthology is impressive, an enormous number of essays. Uh, I highly encourage those interested in food history, those interested in learning more about the food they eat, and in particular, instructors looking for excellent uh, full compendium texts that are really useful for teaching to pick up a copy of Edible Histories, Cultural Politics Towards Canadian Food History. And I will spare you all a food pun, and thank you, <laughs> Ian and Marlene and Franca and Valerie and Jamie for joining us here on the podcast. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Network in Canadian History and Environment, the Robart Centre for Canadian Studies, and Canada's History Magazine. This episode was made by Stacey Nation Knapper, Andrew Watson, Marlene Epp, Franca Yacoveta, Valerie Koronek, Ian Mosby, James Merton, and me, Sean Courage. 
Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. To keep up with current work in the field of environmental history, I'd encourage listeners to download our iOS app, which works on iPhone, iPod Touch, and the iPad. You can get the app at niche-canada.org slash envhist, that's E-N-V-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.